So good morning, everybody that can make it out to church, and good morning to those online. Uh, like Kelly said, my name is Lance Wallace, lead pastor of at First Baptist Church. Tim and I have known each other for 14, 15 years, and uh, just a great friend, and so... Yeah, it's good. We try to do a pulpit swap once a, once a year, and uh, we also do our man camp together with you guys. Uh, so we have man camp back on the calendar. Uh, if you have your Bible, if you want to turn to 1 John chapter 3 this morning, 1 John 3 is where we're going to be. God wants us, he wants his people to be sure of their salvation. He wants you to have confidence that you know that you have eternal life. It's really important for us to have that confidence that we have eternal life. If you're ever meeting with a Jehovah Witness, the one question you could ask them is, do you know that you have eternal life? And they can't say yes, because their eternal life is based on their works. So they don't know. For a Christian, we know we have eternal life. So John says in 1 John 5, 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you can know that you have eternal life. So God wants us to know, to have confidence, to have assurance, which is really important in the days we're living in, right? In this COVID crazy world, to know that we have eternal life. And something I want you to t- consider too, Christian, is Jesus says, this is eternal life in John 17, 3 that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom God has sent. So eternal life isn't something we look forward to in the future. Eternal life is something we enjoy and experience now. So 1 John's a great book to know that you know that you have eternal life, that you know you're a Christian, okay? In 1 John chapter 3, there's two tests that John gives to help you know if you're a Christian or not. And the first test is righteousness. In the first half of chapter 3, do you practice righteousness? Do you do what's right? And even Christians, we sin, right? John says we're going to sin. Christians know how to deal with their sin righteously. So part of practicing righteousness is dealing with your sin righteously. So we confess our sin, we repent of our sin, we seek forgiveness for our sin. So even Christians, we sin, but we practice even how we deal with sin righteously. The next test that we'll deal with today is the test of love. Test of love. Do we love the church? Do we love the people of God? So when when we're born again as believers in Christ, the two things that are going to change in your life are practicing righteousness. You're going to start wanting to do what's right, and you're going to start loving the people of God. You're going to love those who love Jesus. Those are the two main things. And those will help you know that you really do have eternal life. So that's what we're going to get into this morning. There's a bit of confusion today in evangelicalism. Um, a couple of the confusion, a couple of things I would suggest why there's some confusion in evangelicalism. Um, politics confuse things. Um, the affluence in our culture confuses things. And just the strong worldly, secular culture that we live in confuses things. So it's really important in this land of confusion, of evangelicalism, we know who is a Christian, who really is a Christian. Because a lot of people say they're Christians. And so John writes this to know who really is born again, who really is a believer. Because the worst thing that could happen to somebody is they think they're going to heaven, 
and they end up in hell. That's the worst thing that could happen to someone. So John writes these things so you know. These are really important things. Let's pray together. We'll get into God's word, all right? Lord, thank you for the time to be together this morning. Thank you for the clarity of 1 John. Thank you for the clarity it brings into our life right now in this confusing world we're living in, confusing in evangelicalism and Christianity and the church. We thank you that through this season, through this pandemic, it is bringing clarity to your church. It helps us to see who really does believe, who really is a person of faith. And so I pray as we go through these struggles together that you would work on our hearts today, that you would show us um, and bring assurance to our heart, Lord, as we study your word today. Um, that your spirit would do that work, not myself, not anyone else, but your spirit would give us assurance today, Lord, as we seek you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so 1 John chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 9. It's kind of the end of that section on righteousness, and then we'll get into the section on love. 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So that's the hinge that's going to take us into verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Tough scripture this morning for us, a difficult scripture. Um, Tim did tell me there would be children in here. We are going to talk about murder a little bit, so I'll try to keep it PG on that, um, but that's in the text this morning. Um, it's hard for me because I'm going to talk about love, but you're going to feel bad, okay? <laughs> I don't know how else to do it. It's convicting. So there's two instructions here on how to love, it's two basic instructions, the way God wants us to love. The first instruction is the negative, the second is the positive. John teaches this way. It's always a negative example and then a positive example. So the negative instruction is don't be like Cain. Don't be like Cain. The positive instruction is be like Jesus. Be like Jesus. So the first one we'll wrestle through is don't be like Cain. So God wants you to know about hate. He wants you to know about the problem with hate. It's a profound stuff that John brings before us. So about hate, some lessons God brings out here for us about 
hate. And there's four. First of all, the spiritual influencer behind hatred is Satan. The spiritual influencer behind hatred is Satan. So verse 12, whoever has the son, I'm sorry, I'm in five. Get back to chapter three. Um, verse 12, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. So Cain was of the evil one. Cain was of Satan. So the first physical children, the first physical child on earth was Cain. Also the first physical child of Satan was Cain. So Cain is the poster child of hatred and murder. So there's a lot to learn from his life, but to realize that Satan is the one that's the influencer of this. Satan's the father of lies in John 8:44, In 1 John 5, 19, John writes, we know the whole world lies under the sway of the evil one. Ephesians 2, 2, before we trusted in Christ, Paul says in Ephesians 2, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We walked according to the course of this world and followed the prince of the power of the air. Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So Cain's the poster child for hatred and murder, but realize that all who hate, all who murder, are under the influence of Satan. And you see this when you watch TV with this stuff going on in schools and shootings and all this. The world doesn't know what to do with all these things. But we know as Christians, Satan's behind all of this, right? The second lesson on hatred that we learn from Cain here is the motive behind hatred. So what causes hatred to well up in us? It's, it's, it's a common thing to the human nature to have this hatred that can spring up in us. So what is that motive? What's, what's behind the hatred? And the answer to that is jealousy or envy. Jealousy or envy. So verse 12, John asks a question. Why did he murder him? Why did Cain murder Abel? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. The word for murder there is actually um, specific to John. Only John uses this specific word for murder. Uh, it also means slaughter. Uh, so in Revelation and in John, uh, there's, a, there's talk about sacrifices, and that word for sacrifice and slaughtering an animal is the same word John uses for murder here. So I want you to look back at uh, actually Genesis chapter 4 just real quick because in order to understand Cain, uh, who's one of the bad guys in the New Testament, in the Bible, you have to understand the story a little bit. So Je Genesis chapter 4, I'm just going to read this for you. It's a narrative section of Scripture, so the narrative tells the story. The Bible's the most interesting book in the world. If it's boring, it's because of us. It's not because of the book. This book is really interesting. I used to think some of these stories in the Old Testament couldn't be real. 
until this past year. <laughs> you know, like this is crazy what we're dealing with. All right. Genesis chapter 4, verse 2, and again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain work, worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. This is the basis of biblical counseling right here, these next verses. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will, not, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you. But you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? And he, Cain, said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. We don't know why God didn't accept Cain's offering, but accepted Abel's. Maybe Cain's offering didn't cost him anything. Abel seemed to give his best. Maybe Cain didn't understand the seriousness of sin. Maybe Cain showed no reverence for God and his sacrifice. But what we do know is this unrighteousness led to jealousy, which led to hatred, which led to murder. Um, I'm not, can't be sure about this, but I, I do feel like the New Testament is the commentary of the Old Testament. It helps us understand the Old, and the Old helps us understand the New. But from John's language on murder, it would appear that out of jealousy towards Abel and hatred towards God, Cain was like, you want to sacrifice God? That's what you want? Takes his brother out. Blood spills out. Here's your sacrifice. Right? The scriptures tell us that the blood cried out to God. So the motive for the hatred was jealousy. R.C. Sproul said, the one thing unrighteousness can't stand is righteousness. Say that again. The one thing unrighteousness can't stand is righteousness. Which leads us to the next lesson on hatred. This is really interesting what John kind of throws in there in verse 13. Let me uh, read this next. It helps us understand why the world hates Christians. So in verse 13, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. So it seems kind of random that John would say something really interesting like that in this little story, but it's so strategic. It's, the placement is perfect. Understanding that unrighteousness hates righteousness, so don't be surprised, brothers, that the world's going to hate you. 
Jesus said in John 3, 19 and 20, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. So when you become a Christian, don't be surprised if you're not the cool kid anymore. Don't be surprised if people say some nasty things about you on social media when you try to stand for truth and righteousness. Don't be surprised if you don't get invited to certain things. Don't be surprised that the world hates you, John says. 2 Corinthians 6.14, this is a really popular, uh, well-known verse on not being unequally yoked. So we talk about that typically in the, the context of marriage, <laughs> that you want, it's kind of, Paul uses the example of animals to describe us a little bit, but the idea of unequally yoked is for two animals to plow a field, that if you had an ox plowing a field and you had a donkey plowing a field, they might get along at the beginning, but over time there's just going to be the struggle. And that donkey's want to go faster and the ox is just plowing and the donkey's going to get tired and they're just going to be fighting each other. But this is what that verse says. Let me read that verse. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with unrighteousness? Right, that's what John's talking about. Righteousness versus unrighteousness. And John says, we know what the world's about in 1 John 2.16. The world's about loving pleasure. The world's about loving the, the lust of the eyes. And the world's about the pride of life. That's what the world's about. That's what all the world can get. And so we know as Christians, that's not what life's about. And so there's going to be this conflict. There's going to be this hatred. There's going to be this jealousy. In my life, I'm 46 years old, I haven't seen the world so hatred towards the church since this thing's gone on. Even with the press Democrat, some of the things that are going on online, the press Democrat, you guys saw that um, article about Spring Hills, and whether you agree with Spring Hills or not, we're brothers and sisters in Christ with them, but the comments that came through out of that were just horrendous. The vitriol from the world. And let me just share a couple things why I think the world hates the church right now. <laughs> a couple things. First of all, Christians look at death differently than the world looks at death. So for a Christian to live as Christ and to die is gain. So it's different. The world's totally afraid of dying. And a government is either going to lead by fear or by force. And Christians aren't going to give in to the fear. Because to live is Christ and to die is gain. Doesn't mean we do stupid things. Doesn't mean we don't care about others. We just don't have that fear. And the world hates that about us. The second thing why the world hates us right now, and probably the biggest reason, is Christians are able to have what the world desperately wants. We're able to have a community that is known as joy and peace and unity and mutual love and sacrifice that the world can't get. So the world's jealous of that. They're jealous of what we have. 
And I love how C.S. Lewis describes this. It really helps me understand the human machine, he calls it, and how do you get the human machine to work together in unison? And so he wrote this book called Christian Behavior. It's really good. It's, it's out of print now, but um, it's in the, it, this same book is embedded in the book Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. So you might know that book better. But he talks about three ships. And he says, how do you get these three ships to work correctly out on the sea? And there's three things that have to happen. Inside the ship, it has to be in working order. You have to have a good engine inside the ship. Secondly, the ships have to be going in the same direction. And then third, the ships have to have the same destination. And so you hear in the world, like one of the moral platitudes right now from the world is, why is what I'm doing wrong if, as if it doesn't hurt anybody? Or why is this wrong if it's consensual between two individuals? Right? So for the Christian, for Christianity, we understand the ship is broken inside, like we're a mess inside, our hearts are broken, our brains are broken, and so we need a fixing, right? And so we know that through the new birth, we get a new heart, God renews our mind. We're also going along the same direction, right? We have the same book, we have the same laws, love God with all you have and love your neighbors yourself. Treat others the way you want to be treated, golden rule. Right? So we have the same book, we have the same directions, and we have the same destination. We're all heading to the kingdom of God. So for the Christian, our churches, right, we can hum together because we understand these things together. The world doesn't have that. And so that, for that person to say, well, why is it wrong if it doesn't hurt anybody else, there's a couple things. First of all, your body isn't your body. It's God's body. Your life isn't your life, it's God's life. He says what's right and wrong. And you could think that you're not hurting anybody, but after time, your ships are going to collide. There's going to be more calamity. So for that person that thinks that way, it's a very narrow-minded, selfish way to think and approach life. Especially if you want a community and a culture that hums together, that works together. So the world hates that about the church, that we have this community that they desire. So don't be surprised the world hates you. And then fourth, the lesson we can learn from Cain is hatred reveals a lot about the heart. In verse 15, John says something pretty strong here. He says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. So what hatred reveals about our heart is it reveals our heart's messed up. Our heart has problems. And heart and mind are synonymous in the scriptures. Proverbs says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Well, we understand we think with our brain, right? So it's kind of difficult to, so this is messed up, this is messed up, it's it's messed up. Jesus, so remember John learned from Jesus And what Jesus taught about this in the Sermon of the Mount in Matthew 5, Jesus said in verse 21, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you should not murder, and whoever murders will be liable for judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable for judgment. And you know the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is exposing the self-righteousness of the religious teachers and the religious system. 
And they built all these laws and rules and traditions around the Ten Commandments because they just felt like, if I can show people I'm, I'm keeping the Ten Commandments, then I'm righteous. And Jesus says, you guys are all jacked up. You, you don't get it. You ought to be worried about what God thinks of you and not what other people think of you. Man looks at the outer appearance. God looks at our heart. And so Jesus is like, look, you're not a murderer, but you sit there and hate others. You're just fooling yourself. You have a heart problem. So what does the Christian do when we're tempted to hate someone? And I know it's probably not you. I know it's probably just my issue. <laughs> Daily. Matthew 5.43, again, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, You've heard that it was said, You shall love your, your neighbor and hate your enemy. That was their teaching, the Jewish teaching. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So what's the solution when you're tempted to hate someone? Is to pray for them. To pray for them. And prayer isn't just like this virtuous thing we do in a closet. Prayer actually takes the stinger out of your arm. It's Jesus' way to remove the poison of hatred out of you, is to pray. So Jesus is our great physician, right? And this is part of his doctoring of us, to teach us how to deal with hatred, to just to pray for that person. You can't pray for them and hate them at the same time. I've tried. And as you pray for them, you start caring about them. <laughs> And you want, you want God to change their heart. You want God to do stuff. And so then you quit hating them and start loving them. This is God's way. So don't be like Cain, who the influencer is. Behind the hatred is Satan. The motive behind the hatred is jealousy. The world hates you because there's a struggle between righteousness and unrighteousness. And the hatred reveals that our heart is messed up. So to really love, you need to be like Jesus. So let's hit these really quick. What time do you want me to be done teaching, Corey? 12.30. Okay, perfect. Because the hard thing is you need to understand about Cain, but you also need to understand about Jesus. Okay, so I don't want to shortchange you here. Just check out mentally if you need to, whatever. But... Uh, <laughs> Everyone's desire is to love better. Nobody wants to love less. Everyone wants to grow in their love. So there's three lessons John gives here on love. First of all, Jesus laid down his life so we could have new life. Jesus laid down his life so that we could have new life. This idea of being born again. So if you look at John 3, 9, 1 John 3, 9, no one born of God practices makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. He can't because he's been born of God. So it's important to realize this transformation when somebody puts their faith in Christ and they're born again, this transformation occurs inside of a person who truly repents. We get a new nature as believers. And this is important because we need a new nature. So listen to this. If you listen to anything today, listen to this statement. Okay? This is the most important thing I'm going to say. Self-preservation 
is the first law of physical life. Self-preservation is the first law of physical life. Self-sacrifice is the first law of spiritual life. Self-sacrifice is the first law of spiritual life. And so you need that new nature because your old nature is to just have self-preservation. And so that's part of being born again. So Jesus didn't just lay down his life so we can have an example of a sacrificial life. So like when people come into church and they see this cross, they say, oh, what a great Jesus who would die on a cross. What an amazing act of love. But if you don't apply it to yourself, it's worthless. He died on a cross so that you can have new life. See? And the world wants to say, oh, what a great guy Jesus was. But they don't understand he did it for them. Because we need new life. We need forgiveness. And he did it voluntarily. There's so much more to life than, than self-preservation. Um, and a high, just living high on the hog and living for the weekend. There's so much more to life. So Jesus, secondly, Jesus laid down his life to show us what true love really is. So if you look at verse 16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So he did model what true love really is, self-sacrifice. By Cain's example, hatred displayed itself in murder, while love displayed itself in sacrifice. Cain reveals his hate by killing, love reveals itself by giving. Cain took a life because he hated, Jesus gave his life because he loved. Now what happens to us in Christianity is we read things like this, and for the cautious person they think, I don't know if I could ever do that. I don't know if I could really lay my life down for someone in the heat of the moment. But for the courageous person, they're sitting there thinking, I can't wait to do that. Put me on the front lines of the army. I don't care. I want to lay my life down for somebody. But if you keep it in that extreme, you'll never understand what John really is getting at here. It's not a once-in-a-lifetime experience. John says, and this is the third lesson. The radical dimension of Christ-like love will be seen in the daily routine of our life. The radical dimension of Christ-like love will be seen in the daily routine of your life. So verse 17, John says, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Here's what I found just with loving people and church and in life. There's a couple things I just want to share with you, just practical things. First of all, sacrificial love always seems to be an inconvenience. It always seems to be an inconvenience. This is for me, this is just a pagan that grew up in Forceville 
it's hard for me to love sacrificially. This is so convicting for me because it's always an inconvenience. And what I mean by that, as a pastor, I've got a schedule and I've got meetings and I've got stuff and I've got my week planned out. That's just how I think. And so, Corey, it's like, bro, if you're going to have a problem, have it at 2.30 on Wednesday because I've got a break in my schedule 2.30 on Wednesday. And church, listen, my day off is on Thursday. Don't have any problems on Thursday. Last year, I was sitting down to watch the Super Bowl, Niners versus the Chiefs. I don't watch much football during the year. I'm a a pastor. Sundays are kind of tough. But anyway, I was really looking forward to that game. And I sit down with my wife. I'm like, we're going to watch this game together. I'm going to explain football to you. It's going to be this great experience. God probably was saving my marriage that day. But anyway, I got a call like six minutes into the game from a a guy in our church and his son had just died of overdose of drugs so it's like okay I gotta go I didn't even tell Jill what happened I just got up and left right, it's, it's an inconvenience to love sacrificially it's just not, not in our program and one thing COVID's taught us is your program doesn't matter to COVID, right? Your, your youth sports, all the stuff you thought was important isn't that important. Life keeps going on. The train keeps going with or without your day planner. One-third of kids are signing up for Cal Ripken that signed up last year in Windsor. One-third. Why? Because parents realize that wasn't worth it. All that time and energy to do all this stuff and change. Our routines are changing through this. Secondly, Christians need to work hard so that they have something to share with one in need. Christians need to work hard so that you have something to share with someone in need. So look how John says this. He says, whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, right? So in order to help a brother in need, you have to have this world's goods. And to have this world's goods, you have to be a hard worker. So Paul says it this way in Ephesians 4, let him who steals, steal no longer, but rather let him work hard with his hands so that he has something to give and share with the person in need. And why do I know that verse by heart? Because I'm a thief. I was a thief before I came to Christ. And so I need to put off stealing. I need to start working hard. And I was a thief more because it was just interesting to steal stuff. And I'm cheap. I didn't want to pay for stuff. (laughs) But what that verse tells me, I I need to be a hard worker. And so a really good daily prayer for you is, God, help me to work hard today so that I can share with somebody, that I can help somebody in need. It'll help you, it'll motivate you to work hard so you can love the way God wants you to love. And then third, sacrificial love will always require faith. It's always going to require faith. And the reason I say that, I think as Christians, we struggle with loving people too much because we're worried about, am I enabling bad behavior? Should I give this person a certain amount because I know they'll probably squander it, right? So there's that struggle we have. I don't know about you. Maybe, again, this is, maybe this is a me thing. So it requires faith on your part to know the needs you really need to meet. And think about this. 
Jesus met our greatest need through giving his life. Our greatest need is to have a sin bearer, and he laid down his life for us. And in no way did he enable us towards bad behavior, right? He did it. He gave us all so that we would have life. So again, Christ is the perfect example for us of giving and sharing in faith. I wanted to read a quote from C.S. Lewis out of here on giving and sharing with, with the poor and those in need. He wrote this in 1940. Some people nowadays say that charity ought to be unnecessary and that instead of giving to the poor, we ought to be producing a society in which there were no poor to give to. Well, they may be quite right in saying that we ought to produce that kind of society. But if anyone thinks that as a consequence, you can stop giving in the meantime, then he has parted company with all Christian morality. I don't believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. That's a, that's, I've read that quote like six times now, and it's painful every time. The only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. And that has the idea of faith, right? God, you're putting this on my heart to help this person. I don't know where I'm going to get the money for this next thing, but this is what you call me to do. So I'm going to do it by faith. There's a quote on the back of your notes there. It's by James Denny. He's a great Scottish theologian. I'm just getting to know James Denny a little bit if you ever hear his name. He's really good. He's dead now, but he's out of Scotland. And if everybody, you know, if you have a, a what's it called? If you, uh, if you have an accent, right? You're telling the truth, basically, right? So anyway, um, here's a guy with an accent. If I were sitting on the end of a pier on a summer day, enjoying the sunshine and the air, and someone came along and jumped into the water and got drowned to prove his love for me, I should find it quite unintelligible. I might be much in need of love, but an act in no rational relation to any of my necessities could not prove it. But if I had fallen over the pier and were drowning, and someone sprang into the water and it and at the cost of making my peril, or what but for him would be my fate his own, saved me from death, then I should say, greater love hath more love than this. I should say it intelligibly, because there would be an intelligent relation between the sacrifice which love made and the necessity from which it redeemed." Right? So Jesus didn't hang on a cross so that we would look and go, what a cool thing he did, right? He died for us so that we would have life. And we understand that as Christians. We understand the need for a new nature and new life. And out of that new life and that new nature will change how we live to be righteous, to seeking after, be seeking after righteousness. And it'll change how we love to love sacrificially the new nature. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for a chance to be with Redemption Hill Church. Thank you for this community that you've drawn together to worship you, Lord, and to, to love one another. 
Uh, you tell us they will know we are Christians by our love. And so, Lord, as we want to be a testimony, we want to be salt and light to the world, help us to love one another sacrificially. And sometimes I think that means for the church that we would even share the things we're struggling with and the things we need, that we would be humble and other people could come alongside and bless us and share and give. And Lord, help us to, to just meet those needs when they come up in your timing, Lord, as you test our faith in these ways. Lord, help us to not be stingy. Help us to, to give out of faith and love people just through faith. Help us to be a hardworking community, Lord. And so we thank you for this morning. Thank you for just the teaching on Cain, teaching on Jesus. It's so insightful, so helpful for us, Lord, as we want to live our life to bring honor and glory to you. So I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.